All right, good morning, everyone. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we begin today a new section in uh, Chrysostom's text here on marriage and family life. And what we have here is titled, How to Choose a Wife. We might see this as a kind of premarital angle on this. And very, very good, because I think, I think that there is an, a great opportunity for uh, those of us who are parents, but even grandparents, to help our children understand what to look for in a partner, what to look for in a, in a future spouse. Um, I know for many generations, this was just, this was just a given. Nobody even talked about it. It was just sort of, well, you'll stumble into it, you'll find your own way. Maybe some very basic <coughs> parameters were set. I think it's been quite a few decades before most parents were saying, uh, you, you, have to, you have to marry a Lutheran. Now it's just kind of generically, I hope you marry a Christian. And notice the difference between have to, Lutheran, and hope to, Christian. And uh, so the expectation has really We've set the bar lower and lower to the point where most of our youth have zero guidance in terms of a spouse. Um, and, then, and then we wonder. We wonder why uh, divorce rate and failed marriages in the church are really no different than those outside the church. Um, this might have a lot to do with it. So it is then from a, uh, a posture of humility and a desire to learn that we study Chrysostom's insights here. Page 89 in your text. <coughs> Today I shall speak about the same subject. I wish to give advice to those who want to enter marriage. When we are about to buy households and slaves, we are very curious and nosy about the sellers and the previous owners, and about the individuals we are buying. Little, uh, doesn't really strike our modern ears very well, does it? I, you know, I, I, think, we can, I think we can make some... Uh, some distinctions here. I'm not certain that he's talking about the same exact kind of slavery that took place here in America. Um, the other side of the coin, too, is that this is just a reality in much of the world and in much of history. And so let's not lose the forest for the trees, even though we might sort of disagree with this sentiment or wish that he called it out or something like that. Um, what, is his, what is his rhetoric? What is his rhetorical point? You look into these things very scrupulously of lesser degree. These things of lesser degree you spend all this time looking into. Um, to what shall we compare this in our context? The years and years we spend researching just what kind of vehicle, just what kind of model we want, and just what kind of features and compare and contrast and study and learn. Um, do we take the same approach with our spouse? <laughs> no, no, we think, this, and this is one of the, 
one of the many reasons why I think romanticism has ruined us and Hollywood has ruined us on this whole thing because we're not taught to think critically, we're taught to think emotionally and that's going to lead to disaster. All right, so not to lose the forest for the trees even though this section uh, is distasteful to our ears to be sure. When we are about to marry a wife, we ought to show even more foresight. If a house is defective, we can return it. And if a slave is clumsy, we can take him back to the cellar. When we take a wife, we cannot return her to her family, but we must keep her with us until the end. If we reject her because she is bad, we are guilty of adultery according to the law of God. So when you are going to take a wife, do not read the laws of the state only. But first of all, read the laws of the church. God will judge you at the last day, not by the civil law, but by his law. So here then you see the laws of the church and his law being, at least for our purposes, synonymous, even though there may have historically been some distinction here, I don't know. For our purposes... When people get married, they, they often think about, okay, well, well, what do I do? I need to get a marriage license and um, I need to fill out my tax forms differently and this kind of thing. Um, how much more important to look at God's law, to look at God's word and see um, what God uh, demands of the marriage relationship of the marriage contract. Chrysostom continues, neglect of the civil law often brings fines in money. Neglect of God's law brings inescapable punishment for the soul and that unquenchable fire. When you are about to take a wife, you rush eagerly to the experts in civil law. You sit beside them and question them carefully. What will happen if my wife dies childless? What if she has a child or two or three? How will she be able to use her money? if her father is living, or if he is not? What part of the inheritance will go to her brothers and sisters? What part to her husband? When will her husband gain control of the whole without allowing anyone to detach any part of her property? Under what conditions will he be deprived of the whole? You ask many other questions like these with great curiosity, investigating everything to make sure that no part of your wife's property goes to any of her relatives. <laughs> <laughs> I said before, if anything unexpected should happen, the penalty would be only money. Nevertheless, you are not willing to overlook any of these possibilities. Isn't this foolish? When we are in danger of losing money, we take so much care. But when we are risking our souls and the punishment hereafter, we pay no attention. We ought to be concerned and take trouble about these matters above all. All right, so Chrysostom has a, has a great point here. It's certainly couched in terms of the law and the standards that God demands and the punishments that uh, God's law states. So to, to be concerned with the law of God, with the duties of marriage, uh, and with one's own responsibilities within that calling are of the utmost importance much, much, much more valuable to consider than the legal or civil questions involved with marriage. Chrysostom continues, I advise, therefore, and exhort those who are about to marry, 
that they should approach the blessed Paul and read the laws which he has recorded concerning marriage. First, learn what he bids you to do if your wife happens to be wicked, deceitful, alcoholic, abusive, foolish, or subject to any other such fault. Then discuss marriage with this in mind. If you see that he allows you to divorce her and take another, if you find any of these faults in her, then enjoy your freedom from care. If, however, he does not allow this, but bids you to be content and keep her with you in spite of any fault except unchastity, then make your resolve firm to endure all your wife's wickedness. So very often, very often, when we are in an infatuated state as young people, we see only the positives and we minimize the negatives. What, what might we rather do here, uh, very concretely, take, take careful stock of what negatives there are and imagine them being much worse? That would be a, fair more, that would be a far more accurate view of the person we're potentially going to marry. So, yeah, so what would, what would, instead of going to the experts in the law, instead of going, the civil law, instead of going to the, uh, the internet and Googling, you know, what might be a better approach for our young people or where might we direct our, our young people when they say, hey, I'm thinking about being engaged or I am engaged, send them to the pastor and let the pastor do his work. And then we as pastors need to be informed to not just say, to not just assume, oh, okay, everything's great, everything's done here, um, but rather to challenge this and perhaps to take each individual aside and say, so tell me what you like about this person, then tell me what you don't like about this person. Both of those questions are very telling. And um, for those of you who kind of study this on a societal level, you watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, you pay attention to the celebrity marriages and all of these other things, um, what, you'll, what you'll find to those answers of what do you like in this person, extremely superficial and vacuous, attractive, funny, hilarious. You know, what does that have to do with anything? All of these things are completely frivolous and matter almost zilch in terms of the course of one's life. Um, what would the catechism have us look at instead? Devoutness, devotion to God, piety, commitment to God, commitment to one's parents, commitment to one's vocations. Um, in the case of a husband, responsibility, humility, strength, leadership. In terms of a female, um, submissiveness, respectfulness giving honor, and yet having, having a resilience of faith and a commitment to fulfill tasks, no matter what hardships there may be. And, and then to chime in with Chrysostom, in both instances, not lovers of money. <laughs> not lovers of money. Okay? And, then, and then what might be, what might be a, another very fruitful thing, to see what are the negative things in you senior person. And again, what's the superficial American answer, romantic, capital R, romantic answer? Oh, nothing. They're just perfect. Um, I, I see very few faults. That's not an accurate assessment of the person. You need, to, you need to be able to know the person well enough to know what their faults are, not only what their virtues are, but then what their vices are. And you need to amplify those out because the truth is um, people really don't change over time unless you want to say they change 
generally speaking, for the worse. Here I'm talking about the deep personality traits. I'm not talking about behavior. Personality traits generally don't change. They generally deepen. This is, and this of course is just part and parcel of, of kind of the paradoxical conundrum that we all recognize. I think, that, I think the joke goes like this, if I don't butcher it. Um, husbands marry their wives hoping they never change, and they do. Wives marry their husbands hoping they do change, and they don't. But that's just expressing this, this reality that the character, that the character flaws in a person having to do with their personality, they don't, they don't change, they tend to deepen. The, the man says, hey, I wish you were like this, you know, always. And, and she changes and it deepens. The wife, the, the wife sees it as, hey, I want to change you for the better. And instead, he ends up solidifying or changing for the worse. So it's a perceptual kind of thing we have in that statement. Um, and it's, it's how we perceive from different angles this, this same thing. So in uh, Bo Garrett's famous novel, Hammer of God, one of the preachers preaches a, a sermon. And it's well worth memorizing just for the, the dynamics alone. Um, but he likens, he likens sin to a field that's filled with rocks. And immediately upon conversion to Christianity, you're excited, you're joyful, you're exuberant, you're feeling your newfound spiritual strength. There's regeneration, there's a new man in you. Um, not to mention God isn't laying any heavy crosses or burdens upon you yet. And so you go skipping through the field, just, you know, gathering all the rocks. And, and what is this analogous to it? This is analogous to pecking out all the, you know, the kinds of external sins we find ourselves in. And even if we don't go from full-on pagan to Christianity, many of us in our past have had these kind of moments of coming back home, these moments of enlightenment, these moments of taking our spirituality or Christianity seriously once more. I mean, these given us by God's grace. And so what do we do? We immediately clean up what we can clean up in terms of exterior, external type behaviors and things. Maybe we stop going out every Friday night, drinking too much, staying up too late, getting in big trouble, um, that kind of thing. Like that can be cut off relatively easily. We find some new friends, we start going to church regularly, you know, these kinds of things. Okay? Um, but as we quest along, we find that suddenly in that field, there's, we stumble upon what looks like a stone. We just go, we go down to pick it up and, and it doesn't pick up. We, trace the, we, we start tracing the dust away and we realize, oh, this is going to take some time. This is going to take some time. And it does. And so we start digging. We find these bigger things. And we start digging. We start seeking to change them. And um, this is where a, a proud person over time can become more humble. Um, an ignorant person can become more wise. And so on and so forth. Okay. But as you're digging along in this field and you're realizing that there are these changes that are going to take a long time to make, then one day you, you stumble upon what you think is, is a large stone or boulder, and you go doing your dusting to find an edge, and you realize there is no edge. It just goes on, and there's no way you're going to get this out. Now, I find this all the time in marriage counseling, and I find this sermon, this way of thinking of, of sin so helpful, because what we need to realize about ourselves is that there are, we are by nature sinful and unclean as we confess every Sunday. And so there are things in us that we confess against, we acknowledge they're there, 
And yet, and, and we're trying against them. We're trying to change them. And yet we realize that this, for us, is, is written so deeply into who we by nature are that really the only way, the only way for that ever to be removed is in this life to have it cleansed by the blood of Christ. The, in the sermon that Geertz has the fictitious preacher preach, he likens that bedrock that we find to the stony hill of Golgotha the rock-shaped, or the rock-skull-shaped hill upon which Christ dies and the blood must just fall upon it and cleanse it. And so that's us. And then to have that, that stone removed is going to be an act of God via the resurrection. And finally, we'll be free of the small stones, the, the medium stones, and the bedrock that we could never get rid of. Okay, but what, what kinds of things do we need to do here then? We need to identify before marriage as best as we can what are these immovable things? What are these parts of their personality that are likely to never change, but likely to only become more and more obvious over time? And in terms of marital counseling, where you've both already said, I do, this becomes a key element to realize in your spouse those things that they're not going to change. They're, they're simply written into their fallen personality this side of the resurrection. Because those are the very crosses then that God calls you to bear, the very things that he calls you to forgive and apply the blood of Christ to and endure and tolerate. Because frankly, frankly, no amount of counseling, behavioral therapy, confession absolution or anything else is going to change that aspect and element. Very frequently in these dynamics the person is somewhat blind or oblivious to it or incapable of changing the deeper impulses anyway. So we can call these what we may. We can call these kind of bedrock sins. We can call these sins written very deeply into our nature. We can even call them kind of psychologically just personality traits, sinful personality traits. Um, but to recognize these. So Chrysostom here urging us to recognize those ahead of time. Reckon with them. Reckon for their potential. What is this, what is this that I see in this girl or this boy now? And what's that going to look like when it reaches maturity? And can I endure that and be married to that? Can I unite myself to that? That's a great question. Once we find ourselves in marriage, let's identify it. Let's see if it's changeable. Let's be extremely realistic about what's going to change here and what's not. And then let's determine if it's not changeable, how do I forgive this? And how do I get along in such a way that we minimize this issue as much as we can, realizing it's simply not going to change? Does that make some sense? Does that make some sense? I know I'm a little bit afield here from... uh, Chrysostom, but a very, very important way that we look at ourselves, that we look at one another. And I think also then, hugely important, is that we see, we, we gain a broader context of our lives. And the broader context of our lives is probably most helpfully this. They're very short. They're very short. If you get married in your, in your 20s, which is increasingly rare today, um, maybe, maybe much more common to get married in your 30s this day and age. But if you get married in your 20s and you live to your 80s, that's, uh, that's 60 years. Okay? From a certain perspective, especially when you're young, 60 years seems like eternity. But when you look at the whole scope of life and as you get older and you realize how fast time flies, um, you realize that 60 years isn't all that much. The decades roll by. And that's what it is, and that's what I was called to, and this life is very short, and my tasks here are very simple, and 
even though I fail at them all the time, um, one of the great reliefs that come to us as Christians is knowing that this isn't eternal. <laughs> the crosses we bear, the vocations we carry, it's not eternal. It has an end. Right? It's very similar, um, you know, I'm, I've been told this, when you, when you uh, finally set the date of when you're going to retire, all of a sudden your job, like there's this breath of fresh air and you go, ah, okay, it, I mean, what's changed? It's the same job, it's the same people, it's the same toxic dynamics, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and so you say, I can endure this. Piece of cake. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. This, we can do the same thing with all of our diff most difficult vocations, including marriage. We can say, hey, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. This isn't for eternity, and we can endure these, this cross. God will bless us through that, and we will move on. Now, are all marriages cross-bearing? No, of course not. Of course not. Um, but are many of them? Yes. In fact, I would say mo most of them. How do, how do I say, why would I say something so bold? Because if the divorce rate is 50%, we know those. How many others are just enduring for the sake of Christian duty? A sizable percentage of those. So if you're in a, if you're in a marriage that's blessed to where everything I've been saying for the last seven or eight minutes is like, what is he on about? Congratulations. You are extremely blessed. Um, as for the vast majority of, of others and other Christians, you need to realize that probably a good 75% at least are in some sort of marriage where there's great trial, great endurance, great spiritual challenge involved. Great call to forgive and very difficult forgiveness to render. Okay, So just be aware of those dynamics for what they're worth. All right, any thoughts, questions, comments, correctives uh, you all have? Yes, sir. Um, in the spirit of giving advice when it's not asked for, when you see two youths wanting to marry, mm -hmm. I've been told that you have to, f you have to get into, the, uh, uh, into their minds before six months. It's an arbitrary time, but <laughs> otherwise they're going over the cliff. You can't stop it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was wondering, um, but before that even, 9, 10, 12 months ahead of time, or even before they pick a spouse, there's a headstrong nature that these, these people seem to have at, at, at this age. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tools or suggestions which, other than just saying go to God's word, is there a, a way they can realize it? Uh, In many respects, no. No, and that's the... That's the punishment in a, in a sense. It doesn't have to be like full-on punishment, full-on, but, but it is a punishment in a sense of the hubris. Yeah. is when you're, when you're that proud in anything in life that you're not going to hear the wisdom of your elders, you're not going to hear the wisdom of anyone, you're going to leap into it, there's going to be consequences to that, you know, in one way, shape, or form. And it is a pride issue. It is a pride. It's an arrogance issue and a blindness of, of youth, a blindness of love. And when I start pecking up, like, well, what lies underneath that? What causes that immediate self-security? I think it's a lifelong indoctrination of romanticism. That's the closest I can come to, like, what's underneath those symptoms. It's this idea, well, my entire life, all of Hollywood, every fairy tale, every movie I've ever watched, the characters feel like this and I feel like this, and who are you to come with your bucket of cold water and your rationalism and your Bible and tell me otherwise, right? 
So from a really early age to, co to combat that by, by teaching our children duty, vocation, to look for uh, devout spouses, pious spouses, to set those as parameters. I mean, in increasingly what I see, um, I mean, the f yeah. this, isn't, this isn't meant to point fingers at anyone, and I hope, it's, I hope it doesn't. Um, but in my, in my time in the congregation, in the parish, when I kind of generally loosely track uh, most of our young people and who they've gotten married to and, and how life has gone for them, um, and, and I, it fits perfectly across the board with other congregations, with other denominations. Generally speaking, Christians are marrying people who are less Christian than they are, and it's dragging down. They're, uh, it's dragging down their own spirituality. It's dragging them outside of the church. Some, sometimes entirely. Um, sometimes a regular attender becomes a once-a-month attender. A once-a-month attender becomes a Christmas and Easter attender. Sometimes there's nothing there. So, you know, that would be another way to, to combat this. But it's very difficult. It's very difficult to try to... These things have to be done very early on. They have to be done by parents. Parents have to build a trusting relationship with their children. The approval of the father has to mean something again. Um, not only psychologically to the daughter, that's very important, or psychologically to the son, it's very important. Um, but, that, but the father's opinion needs to be grounded and based in God's word and wisdom and perspective. and you know, Something that you don't even think about when you're 17, 18, 27, 28. Uh, you don't even think about is, um, well, how, do, how am I going to fit into this other family? And how is, how is my spouse going to fit into my family? Very often these are, these are superficially considered. One of the perspectives that virtually all parents have, virtually all, is this ability to see a little bit more multi-generationally and to see the context of a family and to see the context of another family and to understand that societally and say, yeah, this, this is going to be an okay fit. You're, you're likely to experience these tensions. Or, you know what, this, if you really insist upon this, this is what, this what's likely to occur, these tensions. You know, very frequently we can say that. We've just been afraid to say that. Yeah. So, so yeah, it has to happen organically. But in, in lieu of that, and when, when that hasn't taken place, I would just say be bold, be forward, and be blunt with what you see. That's the best service you can give. And if that's met with pride and arrogance, so be it. At least you've warned them. At least you've given them pause to consider. Follow-up question then. Uh, someone who has gone into a marriage and got, has gotten divorced and then is looking at another marriage, can you comment on your experience and how they look at their next decision yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great question. So not only do you have really important theological questions to ask of the circumstances of the divorce and this kind of thing, and those need to be asked right away, but let's assume that all of that sort of lines up where, uh, where a second marriage would be biblically permissible. Um, great pastoral care is needed. Great pastoral care is needed. I think, unfortunately, this is seen as someone prying into my business. And there's this reticence, especially when there's like shame involved with the divorce in the context of a church. And it's this feeling of like, 
well, I don't even want to talk about this. I'm ashamed, and I certainly don't want to talk about this with a pastor. That would make me feel more ashamed. I mean, but what is this analogous to? This is like, this is like having a, a kind of a nasty wound or something you know, and being ashamed to take it to the doctor. That's what it's analogous. We're not ashamed to take it to the doctor. I mean, if you've got a nasty wound on your rear, you drop your drawers right in front of the doctor and say, here it is. What do you, what's up? <laughs> you know? Oh, you've got to go to another specialist. Okay, no problem. And you do. But we're afraid to do the spiritual equivalent with a pastor, and that's a real shame. I think pastors are to blame in part because we've proven ourselves to be untrustworthy by and large as a guild. Um, but if you have a faithful pastor who's committed himself to keeping these things quiet, he's proven himself to be a trustworthy guy, go to him and say, these are the dynamics. When he asks the probing questions and the challenging and painful questions, realize he's a doctor doing an examination. And he's trying to, he's trying to find out what scars and wounds you bear. Because wherever two are made into one flesh, and then that one flesh union that God has joined together has been separated, there's going to be scars and wounds. You need to understand if those, in yourself, more objectively, you need to have someone outside of you who understands these things, look and tell you what those scars and wounds are, help you identify them, help you identify what the cure and treatment is, and then see realistically how that's going to line up with this other person. The, the, more, the more divorces you have in the background, the more divorces the other person has in the background, the more, the more care and time you need to take. Um, you, the statistics bear this out. I don't have them off the top of my head. But whereas the divorce rate is something around 50%, give or take, right now, after you're divorced and you get remarried, the divorce rate shoots up to something like 70%. And if you divorce there and get remarried, it shoots up to something like 80 or 90%. Because psychologically, you just get in this thing of like, hey, if you don't work out, you're gone and on to the next one. So these are the kinds of things that just really take a lot more time um, to understand about yourself, to understand, and painful conversations. What really, what really led to the failure of your previous marriage? What are those things inside of you that contributed to that, and how are you going to ensure that they don't contribute to a failure of a second marriage? You know, these are, it, it takes time, it's painful, it's hard, but it is so worth it. Obviously, this flies in the face of the sentiment of, you know, what, do what feels good now and quickly and don't dwell on the pain of, that has so inculcated us in culture. But yeah, Thank you for that, Barry. Those are very, um, very difficult circumstances. And then if you add in kiddos, a uh, whole other dynamic. You know, if a divorced woman with children or a divorced man with children and you, you know, you're trying to bring those together. Didn't we have the television show Brady Bunch where that, um, it was something similar to that. Were they not divorced? Were they widowers? Yeah. Um, so I think the widower part, as you could tell from my own comments, kind of gets lost sometimes. And people go into this idea of like, well, I've got my kids from a former marriage. You've got your kids from a former marriage. We're all just going to join together. It's going to be the Brady Bunch. Yeah, not quite. Not quite. There's really difficult dynamics there in terms of parenting. Okay. Thank you for those comments. Any other, any other comments, questions? Yes, sir. Let, let's get you a microphone quickly. I had a question more on the um, sin nature. Mm. Uh, let's take control, for example, which is common yeah. uh, if, if a husband is, is over-controlling. Are you saying that you, should, you would recommend that the spouse would just concede and go, okay, he's controlling, this is my cross? I mean, it's hard to give up con con control, but 
you could temper yourself a little bit, maybe. Uh, I mean, or would you just concede that the husband's going to be controlling the rest of his life? And um, are we talking in the context of uh, premarital or no, no, post-marital? current in the, in post, the midst of marriage? Yeah, yeah, and control is the issue. Um, yeah, so, so something like that. Yeah, so right off the bat, we're gonna we're gonna look at like, okay, well, what are the behavioral manifestations of this? Uh-huh. Can we change those behavioral ma- manifestations? And and in doing that, can we can we chart a different course? You know, but part of that is, well, how many how many different times have you tried to address this before in your marriage? How many other counselors have you seen? What strategies, techniques, tactics have you used? Um, How many of those things have had any success whatsoever? All of those are very important contextual Mm -hmm. questions to see whether or not a behavioral pattern might be adjusted so that at least there's less friction or changed for the better, um, even if those sort of personal impulses are there. I mean, so by analogy, by analogy, both sexes, due to the fall into sin, have an, have an impulse to have sexual relations outside of the marriage. But you curtail those, and that doesn't dissolve the marriage. You curtail those. You swear to be faithful to each other, and you're faithful mm-hmm. to each other. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, is, can we do something similar here, where there's this desire to control, but it's curtailed enough, it's not in, you know, afflicting anything upon the other spouse? Yeah. But sometimes, I think, and maybe I'm, I'm imagining here an extreme example where they're already married, the behavioral stuff works for a time, and then it sort of recedes again, and the problem's full-blown. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then my response is, okay, so every, every six months, you, you want to have a checkup with your pastor or your counselor. You want to rein this back in. And, and you're just both recognizing at that point that you're dealing with the symptoms, yeah, yeah. And, and you're just trying to make the symptoms manageable enough that you can have a more functional marital yeah. relationship. So you try to deal with it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you try to deal with it without curing it. I, so, so, very, so this is one of the big illusions that all of us have. I don't know why, but all of us have these illusions. And that is we find a problem in our partner and we imagine that they can be cured. Okay, but then follow that logic to its logical... If they can be cured of that, they can be cured of what else? Well, everything else. So now we're confessing this belief that we can make our spouses sinless. No! I mean, the whole biblical theology flies in the face of this, right? So we need to realize what we can change, what we can't change, what we can mitigate, what we can't mitigate, what is a cross, what isn't a cross. And just because we acknowledge that, okay, there's control or there's laziness, or there's frivolous spending, or there's, you know, something like this. Um, just because we say, hey, this is the way it is, this is sort of a bedrock sin for this person, their personality, doesn't mean that we can't still work on the behavioral components in order to make a more smooth and functional relationship. We can still, we can still and always do that, right? But it's just this false belief that we have of, I can cure this person of being this way. Very unlikely. <laughs> very unlikely. Yeah, maybe. Um, but very unlikely in many cases. At least those it, th- that I'm thinking of right now. So it's difficult to speak about these things generally sometimes. We might be thinking two different things in our minds, but yeah, generally speaking, those are, those are true. Yes? Yes. Um, um, yeah, microphone quick. Chris, it stems, uh would be 
you can't cure it, but you should endure it? I think so. I think that that's a fair, I think that that's a generally fair statement. I think that that's um, here in, in paragraph 90, um, what, he's, what he's doing rhetorically, even though I think it's, it's probably a, transa a translational issue more than anything. But here in, on page 90 in the first full paragraph, they should approach the blessed Paul and read the laws which he has recorded concerning marriage. First learn what he bids you do if your wife happens to be wicked, deceitful, alcoholic, abusive, foolish, or subject to any other such fault. Then discuss marriage with this in mind. Well, what is Paul's advice? Is it permissible to divorce on account of those great failings? No. And I think that that's precisely his point. So you need to in the first place, reckon with that principle, because formally that is the first. And then in the second place, do what? I mean, what's the unstated here? Examine your potential spouse for these characteristics. Even if you don't find them, recognize that there's a potentiality for these things to develop. You know, not, not, every, uh, not every couple that marries starts with one of the two of them being alcoholic. That develops later on in the marriage, okay? But you just need to realize that and know what you're going to do ahead of time. Um, know what God calls you to ahead of time before you enter into the marital contract. Yeah, this next line. Um, if you see that he, namely St. Paul, allows you to divorce her and take another if you find any of these faults in her. Um, well, does he say that? No. Then enjoy your freedom and take care. I take that to mean he's saying, um, then, then rethink marriage. Enjoy your freedom. I think that that's what he's saying. Um, if, however, he does not allow this, which of course he doesn't, but bids you be content and keep her with you in spite of any fault except unchastity, that's most certainly what he does, then make your resolve firm and endure all of your wife's wickedness. So in other words, if you... If you understand Paul and you're okay with this woman and the potentialities, then go into it knowing what you're going to endure. If you don't, if you see this, what St. Paul says, and you see what this, and or you see what your potential spouse is going to be like, or what you might be called to, and you don't, then take care and have your freedom. Okay? Um, of course, what does he mean in that sense? Then he means uh, chastity. Chastity outside of marriage or chastity inside of marriage. The goal for Christianity is always chastity. It's chastity in one form or the other. Right? I think that that's what he's up to here. If, if you see it differently, um, please open my eyes. It's kind of awkward in the English there to, uh, to grasp, but I think that's what he's up to. Okay, because he continues like this, right where we left off, in fact. If this is heavy and burdensome, then take care to choose a good, kind, docile wife. Okay. And there I think docile in the sense of biblical, you know, submissive. Yeah, so just to take care. I mean, and, and of course I flipped that already with the husband, so I don't think I have need to do that again, but it's just what, are the, what does the Bible say a husband should be like? Take every care to choose that. You know, and I think, I think the keys here, too, in our context would be, well, of course your future spouse is, generally speaking, going to treat you very well. You're both in this infatuation uh, period. Pay very close attention 
to how he or she treats uh, his or her parents, his or her family, his or her uh, employers or employees, his or her siblings and friends. Pay very close attention to those things because there's going to be more truth there. It's not going to be, you know, when the infatuation period dies away, that's how you're going to be treated. Does that, does that make sense? Does that ring with some truth in your experience? Yeah, so I think that that's, you know, in terms of instructing young people, I think that's a, a better way to look at it. All right, Chrysostom continues, you know that you must make one of two choices. If you take a bad wife, you must endure the annoyance. If you are not willing to do this, you incur the guilt of adultery by divorcing her. The Lord says, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity makes her an adulteress, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 5.32 And, and may, I, may I, while this uh, certainly, certainly condemns many, may I also assert that the reason why Jesus is so steadfast in this is because he is the bridegroom of his holy bride, the church. And we can't, he does not want us to have any doubt whatsoever that he is going to abandon us, that he is going to give us a certificate of divorce because we are sinful and because we have been sinful against him. So not only does he, of course, accuse and put to death the sinful flesh that is within us, but yet with the same stroke, he assures us of who he is and his steadfastness toward us. You remember how Hosea marries... Uh, the prostitute, God tells Hose, the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. And even when she has been unfaithful, continues to be unfaithful, he remains faithful to her. And this is to be emblematic of God's faithfulness, of the Lord Jesus' faithfulness to us, to his church. And so that's why is Jesus so stringent on divorce? Here's this like this is the two edges of his sword, of the sword of his word. One edge puts to death the sinful nature. The other edge puts to death our doubts in who he is and his steadfast love for us. Continuing with Chrysostom, if very bottom of 90, if we have investigated these laws and know them well before we marry, we will take great care to choose a wife who is well-ordered from the beginning and compatible with our character. I think there's a, there's a great book out there. I haven't read it, but I know, the, I know the principle, and there's some truth to it. It's just not pleasant truth. And it, it's how you're, always, how you're always going to choose the wrong spouse. And you're going to do this psychologically. You're going to do this psychologically by nature. And it's, this, it, it's part and parcel of the truism that opposites attract but opposites also repel. <laughs> and opposites also cause a lot of problems. It's a fascinating thesis. It's a fascinating uh, thing to consider. And what would that mean? Theologically, that would mean that marriage in a fallen world is designed to rub the rough edges off of us. It is designed to transform us. Marriage is not for happiness, but for holiness a thesis that I don't think I've mentioned since maybe the earliest pages of this text. And so many of the things that we consider to be the worst parts of marriage or the worst parts of the marriages that we've seen or been exposed to um, are from God's vantage point, 
quite rather the best, quite rather precisely what he intends to be doing, uh, rubbing the rough edges off sinners and transforming them into that which they are not. You know, we have this, uh, this analogy in a different context in the Bible as iron sharpens iron, you know, iron rubbing against each other and the two become, the two become sharp. Uh, very similar thing happens in marriage. You put two sinners together and they transform each other into something better by God's grace. All right, but again, the advice for those, of, for those who are looking to marriage, find someone who is well-ordered. And that doesn't necessarily mean they, you know, they keep their house clean, but <laughs> certainly that's an extension. Well-ordered here would be an expression of uh, devoutness, devotion, so that they've got God first as their priority. They're regularly going to church. That's their priority, even above and beyond you, above and beyond any of their hobbies or interests. God and, and, and Christ at the very center. And then whether or not you're going to be compatible with their character and stuff. And this is, again, where parents and pastors can just be so helpful, so helpful if we'll allow them, because these are people, and, and I should put in Christian counselors too, these are people who understand things more broadly. They, they've seen more, they've worked with people more, they know more history, they know more of the generational shifts, they know more of familial origins, they have a greater sense for who and what family units are and stand for, and they can help you negotiate all these things, which as a young person you don't even think about. As a young person you just go, oh, attractive, let's get married. Um, oh, you like me. That's a, and this unfortunately happens very frequently too. We're not so much attracted to the person as we are attracted to the fact that they're attracted to us. So narcissistic, so self-loving is our age that uh, many young people don't actually even love the other person. They love the affection they receive from the other person. Two very different things. So that if that affection ever wanes, immediately they realize their mistake. But of course it's too late if they're already married. So. All right, uh, 91, roughly where we left off. Um, again, looking for someone who is well-ordered. They have their, their priorities straight, I think is the meaning here. And compatible with our character. You know, this is a big deal too. Like, if one of you is like super, um, what do we say, extrovert, you gain all your energy from social life and you love going out, and the other of you is introvert and you gain all your energy for, from staying in at home, um, Pay really close attention to that kind of thing. One of you is really outdoorsy. One of you is really not. Uh, pay close attention to these things because they're going to they're be possible incompatibilities with character. All right, if we marry a woman like this, namely compatible with her character, we will gain not only the benefit that we will never divorce her, but also that we will love her intensely as Paul commands. Why? Because you love her virtues. Ugh. I think I, will, I think I will fall off of my sofa if I ever hear anyone in popular culture, you know, what do you love about this person? Or what do you love about me? And they start reciting virtues. I think I will fall out of my sofa. Because nobody, nobody says this. Nobody says faithful, steadfast, devoted, you know, a lover of God, moral, upright, just, um, self-sacrificing. When's the last time you've ever heard anyone say these things about their boyfriend or girlfriend or 
their spouse. It's always like attractive, nice, hilarious, funny, perfectly imperfect. I don't know, you're just you. I mean, what is all of that stuff? It's utter rubbish. It's utter rubbish. You, you could say anything. I, you know, and, and I think the, the most embarrassing thing is when couples have dated each other, and this isn't wise either, but for many, many years, and then, and then that's all you have to say, that should, be, that should be reason right there. In the first place that you've dated many, many years, it should be reason in and of itself that, hey, this isn't going to work. If it was going to work, you all would have already been brought to the point of marriage. Um, and then in the second place, if all you can say after all those years of dating is these superficialities, then you already know that the person does not have the things that you truly seek in a spouse. They don't have these deeper virtues, otherwise those would be self-evident and obvious to you, and those would be the things you're attracted to. By the way, what's the core and key of those virtues? They don't go away. Here's the, here's the thing that's analogous um, on the other side of the coin to the, the rock of the personality trait that is bad that you can't get rid of. A virtue written into a person, likewise, is it, while they, you know, while they can be mitigated behaviorally, they tend to be there all the time. So if you find someone who is honest, devout, loving, self-sacrificing, all these kinds of virtues, um, just, merciful, long-suffering, when you find someone with these kinds of virtues, those virtues are, are going to last, um, and they're, almost, they're, they're certainly going to last longer than the looks, longer than the humor, longer than the good times, and the other superficial compatibilities, they're going to be there. And those are things that you can always love. Um, yes, we'll get you a microphone here. But those are things that you can love, by the way, even in the midst of great difficulties and great challenging years and, um, and times in your marriage, too, is you can say, why, why did I marry this person again? Oh, yes, because despite all these other flaws that have become so obvious to me, these are the virtues that this person carries and still carries today. And I can love and appreciate those and, in, and because they belong to this person, I can love and appreciate that person. Um, very helpful. Yes. Again, I'm a proponent for our Christian day school where the essence of the catechism is presented daily with memorization, which goes deep in soul, inside the soul. I mean, we had to memorize that. Uh, you can tell that was an emphasis in my life because I talk about it every time. Yeah, yeah. Think of what uh, Galatians 5, 21, and the memorization that was expected of the children, mm. of me. <laughs> yeah. When the Holy Spirit controls our lives, he will produce this kind of fruit in us. And there are nine of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Gentleness is a critical thing to teach young girls and young boys yes. and self-control right. how about self-control at the top oh yeah yeah, yeah. very well said but thank it, you yeah it, thank you for that ellie and it's it's so true and what you say about the christian day schools applies also in the christian home as um as as parents teach this to their children well we're a little short on time let me let me get get us through at least this paragraph um top of 91 if we marry a woman like this, we will gain not only the benefit that we will never divorce her, but also that we will love her intensely as Paul commands. For when he says, Husband, love your, husbands, love your wives, 
He does not stop with this, but gives us a measure for love, as Christ loved the church. Of course, this is Ephesians chapter 5. And how did Christ love the church? Tell me. He gave himself up for her. So even if you must die for your wife, do not refuse. If the master loved his servant so much that he gave himself up for her, all the more you must love your fellow servant as much. Let us see, however, whether perhaps the beauty of the bride attracted the bridegroom and the virtue of her soul. No, she was unattractive and impure, as the next words show. When Paul says he gave Christ, gave himself up for her, that is the church, he adds that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water. Now, is Chrysostom here advocating that we be saviors and that we go out looking for a potential spouse to have all the worst possible characteristics so that we can... No! What is his argument? Rather, in the context of marriage, even if she were as bad, even if he were as bad as all fallen people put together, still we are called to love as Christ loved. And here we see how much, how, how much greater Christ's love is and his capacity for love than ours. But that becomes a model, a strength, and a, and a great encouragement that as Christ loved the church, who was completely filthy, um, so then we can love our spouses despite their sins. The sins of one person or the sins of countless people, right? You see? So great encouragement here. Chrysostom continues, when he, St. Paul says, having cleansed her, he shows that she was unclean and unholy, not in any ordinary way, but with the greatest uncleanness. She was defiled with grease, smoke, blood, gore, and innumerable stains like these. Um, Yeah, these stains suggest animal sacrifice, whether Jewish or pagan, the footnote reads. Nevertheless, he did not abhor her ugliness, but changed her repulsiveness, reshaped her, reformed her, remitted her sins. You must imitate him. Even if your wife sins against you more times than you can count, you must forgive and pardon everything. And that, by the way, is the, is the absolute groundwork of Christian marriage, is forgiveness. Nothing else. If you've got two spouses willing to forgive, you've got a marriage. Ah, that's it. Um, it's, it really is that simple. It really is that hard. <laughs> but forgiveness is, is the key. Even if your wife sins against you more times or your husband sins against you more times than you can count, you must forgive and pardon everything. If you marry a surly woman, you must reform her with gentleness and kindness, as Christ did the church. He did not only wipe away her uncleanness, but even stripped off her old age, taking off the old humanity which is composed of sin. Paul hints at this also, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. He did not make her merely beautiful, but also young, not according to the nature of her body, but according to the state of her character. And this is not the only marvel that when he found her ugly, shameful, and old, he did not abhor her ugliness, but handed himself over to death and refashioned her in unimaginable beauty. I mean, this is, this is great, wonderful gospel comfort because this isn't merely talking about Christ and the church, it's talking about Christ and 
us and what he has done and is doing present tense for us. Chrysostom continues, It is even more marvelous that after this, when he often sees her soiled and spotted, he does not reject her, nor cast her away from himself, but continues to care for her and correct her. How many, tell me, have sinned after coming to the faith? Yet he did not abhor them. And sinned here probably means committed some moral sin, or some great moral sin. I mean, um, mortal sin. That's the word I'm looking for uh, in Chrysostom's context. But even after coming to the faith and sinning, Christ does not abhor us. Yet he did not abhor them. For example, the immoral man at Corinth was a member of the church. He did not cut off the member, but cured it. 1 Corinthians 5. The whole church of the Galatians was rebellious and fell into Judaizing practices. Yet he did not cast them out either, but took care of them by Paul's agency and restored them to their former relationship. When there is an infection in our bodies, we do not cut off the limb, but try to expel the disease. We must do the same with a wife. If there is some wickedness in her, do not reject your wife, but expel the evil. After all, it is possible for a wife to reform, but it is often impossible for an injured limb to recover. Yet even when we know that the injury is incurable, we still do not cut off the limb. All right, this is very nice. So, Christum's saying the same thing I was saying and the same thing Geertz is saying with his sermon of the different kinds of sins. Here is, um, if you've got one that's uh, an injured limb and it's, it's curable, you don't cut it off. Even if it's incurable, you don't cut it off. Okay. Obviously, we can think of an exception to that, but you still grant his point. He continues, often a person with a crooked foot, a lame leg, a dry and withered hand, or a sightless eye does not put out the eye or cut off the leg or the hand. Instead, even though he sees that no benefit comes to the body from the diseased part, and indeed much shame comes upon the other limbs, he goes on keeping it because of its affinity with the rest. Isn't this foolish? When the cure is impossible and there is no benefit, we exercise such care. But when there is good hope of amendment, we refuse treatment. When something is injured in its nature, it cannot recover, but the crooked inclination can be reformed. Even if, well, we're out of time. So I, Sorry, it's kind of mid-argument here. I want to continue because what he's written so far really kind of leaves some questions in our minds that are going to be resolved. But what is his point? He, again, rhetorically is kind of calling us out for our hypocrisy. We treat our bodies in one way, and then we would treat our spouses another way. What's, what's a likely punch there? Our spouse is our body, right? So if, if what we do to our physical bodies is greater than what we do for our spouses, um, then are, are we not foolish? Have we not disordered everything? All right, more from Chrysostom. Next week, we are drawing to a close here. So, um, so we, are, we are approaching our Wolfmuller text on um, has has Christianity in America failed? We'll be asking that question, answering that question in weeks to come. Um, until next week, and always the Lord be with you.